Hi guys, welcome back to 100% Cars. I'm Nico Lombard and you are listening to episode 4. I'm here with Quillen, the official co-host, and we've got an awesome episode for you guys today. We are going to be talking about the all-new Ford Bronco and Ford F-150, as well as interviewing car enthusiast and car driver, writer, Brett Burke. We'll hear more about that later. And if you guys have any ideas for new segments at all, please email us at 100%car at gmail.com. That's 100%car at gmail.com. Let's get started. Okay, Quillen, tell us about the 2021 Ford Bronco. This past several weeks has been pretty eventful for Ford as they um, have just released the new F-150, but what everyone is really excited about is the new Bronco. So they stopped production on the Bronco in like 96 and just got a new one. It's pretty exciting. So there's uh, the two and the four-door options, very similar to a Jeep a Wrangler. We have six different trim lines and the first edition, of course, but that is basically already sold out. These are all available to reserve right now. So uh, powertrain, we have a 2.3 liter EcoBoost. And then we also have the optional uh, 2.7. And we also have a seven-speed manual gearbox. And that is a six-speed with a crawler gear. However, that manual transmission is only available in the smaller 2.3 liter EcoBoost mm-hmm. versus the 2.7, which you can only get with the 10-speed automatic. But the 10-speed automatic is also an option with 2.3 also. We have the base Bronco, which is just called Base, Big Ben, Black Diamond, Outer Banks, Badlands, Wild Track, and the first edition. And all of these have the short calls, uh, the go-over all-terrain, and that is standard on all of their packages, all of the models. And that's their terrain management system. Uh, we also have the soft Squatch package, which everyone is talking about, which is available on all of those. Um, And that includes the 17-inch black painted aluminum uh, with the the uh, B-lock wheels Mm -hmm. with the 35-inch tires. And that also includes the locking front and rear differential axles, which we don't really see a lot anymore. Yeah. So that should be exciting. Yeah. And... I heard something that that's coming um, with both Broncos is the trail site, which apparently, you know, helps you locate, you know, a, a different off-road trails without, you know, connecting your phone, which I thought was really neat. Wait. Yeah, so it, it the trail site is supposedly um, you're able to use it offline, which will yes. be uh, very interesting, especially for people that are looking to get into off-roading. Um, for sure, but for sure. don't know where to start looking mm-hmm. for trails. That should be that'll be yeah. a good feature. Yeah, so nice. the the mirrors are on the body, so they don't come off with the um, yes. doors, which Jeep doesn't offer. Uh, you have to get uh, like sure. third-party yeah. uh, aftermarket if you want to stay road legal. Um, For sure. There's some small touches. They have um, – there are, like, tie-down markers on the front hood. Mm, yes. Um, there is a, 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 like, slide mount camera rack that's mounted uh-huh. on the dash. Uh, to to hold your phone or like a GoPro. Yes. Oh, that. Oh, yeah. I love that. That. Yeah, yeah. that was pretty mm-hmm. cool. For, Overall, then, this is a very cool car. Um, yes. Um, whether it, it's very off road capable, but also um, a very good looking. Um, yeah. <laughs> overall, cool car. 
Well, yeah. And, you know, I think what a lot of people were happy about is the accessories on this truck. You know, you're thinking not only will Ford provide you so many off-road, not aftermarket options, but like other options to enhance, you know, make your Bronco more capable. But you've got all these other companies like Mopar is probably going to give you something. You know, there's so many things that this Bronco hopefully will be able to be, you know, customizable, which I'm, I'm really excited for. You know, you see all these different types of builds of Broncos. Yeah, Ford is rumored to be working with um, a lot of yes a lot of companies to uh, create specific Bronco uh, yes. accessories which is really nice because uh, Jeep basically owns that market um, right now with you know off-road aftermarket <laughs> yes a lot of yes they do it's, it's very uh, saturated so uh, yes. it's good to good to know that they're working on that yeah all right so Next How about up? the F-150? Oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> F-150, two weeks, two, three weeks ago. And, you know, one thing that they claimed is that every body panel is new. Like, it's brand spanking new. And I'm just going to go over here with you guys the um, trim levels, which are actually pretty similar. They've carried over a lot, uh, you know, throughout each, you know, generation. So you've got the XL, XLT, Lariat, King Ranch, Platinum, and Limited. What they highlight in the, you know, being able to combine all these things into one truck, whether that's working on the go, you know, working uh, at your truck, you know, being able to have your mobile office in your truck. So we'll get more of that later. But engines, so there'll be um, several engines you guys can get. So there'll be the 3.3 liter V6, a 5 liter V8, a twin turbocharged 2.7 liter V6, a twin turbocharged 3.5 liter V6, a 3 liter diesel V6. And, you know, it comes with a 10-speed automatic. And something else is for the first time ever, there'll be a hybrid powertrain for the 750, which is going to be really cool. And that can, and that's going to be a 3.5 liter twin turbo V6 with a 35 kilowatt electric motor with the, still the 10-speed automatic transmission. So, you know, there's towing and payload capacity. The maximum is going to be 13,000 pounds, which, if you know, that'll compete with the Chevrolet Silverado 1500, GMC Sierra 1500, and Ram 1500. So, interior, if you, um, the interior has changed, like, quite a bit. If you, um, you know, it's got, I, it's got some pretty big changes to it. Um, sorry. <laughs> so, this has a 8-inch infotainment system that, um, runs with their new um, software. And you can also option for a 12-inch screen, and this will almost match Ram's 1500's optional 12-inch 12, 12 vertically-oriented display. But this will also be coming, fortunately, with Apple CarPlay and Android Auto, which are both standard, um, Wi-Fi hotspot, navigation, Sirius XM radio. You can option out for the Bang & Olsen stereo system. And there's also uh, something that'll help owners track vehicle location, which is going to be really cool. Driver assistance features, which they're going to start, you know, crash testing, seeing all that. And I think there will be driver assistance, you know, adaptive cruise control, automatic emergency braking, lane departure will all be implemented into the Ford F-150. It and looks it, basically the same. It, exactly. It's a little bit more curved out and aerodynamic. It looks good. Still an F-150. But yeah, I think though the hybrid powertrain is really going to, like that's going to be a big change. Getting into this electric car world, this is a good way for Ford to start that for their truck. That also makes me think that it's very i know that it's rumored but i think it's very possible that the bronco could be implementing a either hybrid or yes. all-electric drivetrain i did uh, hear fairly about that. soon i think they will probably add a hybrid power change to that i mean it's very likely and yeah so sorry and lastly the 2021 ford f-150 will start at thirty thousand dollars and it'll go ranging all the way up to seventy thousand before options so yeah uh, that's going to be 
F-150 and Bronco, you know, Ford's had this big couple of months releasing two, well, you know, Ford F-150's best-selling truck in America, Bronco, one of the most anticipated, if not the most anticipated car of the year to be unveiled. Jeep finally has their first, you know, real competitor in this SUV truck off-roading segment. So it's Yeah, I think we've seen a lot of new cars in this market, all the way up to <laughs> yes. the Land Rover Defender, which is mm-hmm. de- definitely a higher price point. In this class, you know, we have the um, Toyota TRD Pro, the yes, Forerunner yes. TRD Pro. We have the uh, the Rubicon is kind of the closest comparison. So Jeep is supposedly, uh, they just launched a concept for a uh, V8. Yes. I believe. <laughs> yes, I heard about that. And it's just so funny that they added that right before the Bronco was released. Just so like, oh yeah, we're not done yet. Like, you know, because they, they knew the Bronco was going to be a hit. So they had to come out with something. That's that's going to match up really well with that. Um, I think it's a the, the twin turbo. Um, yeah, 800. Eight, yeah. The six cylinder. I think that that's going to that's gonna line up pretty well. Um, they're, yeah. they're pretty head to head, but Ford definitely uh, bringing the heat. In this, they did not take this lightly. Mm-hmm. They really <laughs> yes, for sure. brought it home. And, you know, what's smart is right now, I think it's only reserving the sport. I think right now. Yeah, I think it will. It will. Of course, no one has actually gotten to drive the Bronco yet. Um, but on paper, I think that uh, Jeep definitely um, has a steep competition ahead. Yes, I think so, too. And also being able to production. Because, I mean, if you look at Tesla and, you know, the production, the demand for those cars was a lot higher than anticipated. So, I mean, let's just hope that Ford can get all these orders out, you know, on time or on plan. Because it's what you don't want is, you know, angry people saying, where's my Bronco? Yeah, I, I don't exactly have it in front of me, but I think that apparently they will start, like, sending out uh, customization like forms to people uh-huh. in around like Christmas time. Um, okay. And then they will be shipping uh, that summer, apparently. Wow. Okay. Um, I hope you all enjoyed so the first episode out, of Quantum I'm not just sure as much as I did. Next up, my that, interview that, with Brett probably the automotive I'm probably writer. getting it Enjoy. wrong. But um, yeah, I, I would, uh, I think it will be interesting to see if uh, how close Ford is able to um, adhere to that. I mean, I'm sure they had to be expecting probably not oh, this sure. much, but uh, definitely a lot of demand. <laughs> yes, of course. All right. So that's going to conclude our, you know, our talk on these two popular trucks. I'm so happy that, you know, I'm finally getting to talk with Quillen. You know, he's finally going to be on the podcast and it's just going to be great. It's going to be a great journey. guys all enjoyed the first segment with Quillen just as much as I did. Next up is my interview with Brett Burke. I found Brett while reading this month's Car Driver magazine where he wrote an article about his passion for cars and how his passion only grew. It was something I really identified with. After reading that, I realized how similar Brett and I are. I knew I had to get an interview with him. Brett writes for many magazines such as Car and Driver, Road and Track, GQ, and Wired Magazine. He's a very inspirational figure, and I think you'll find his take on the reasoning behind why our passions are so important to us 
very interesting. So I just wanted to start out first with the article that you recently wrote for Carn Driver that, you know, it really resonated with me because the, the exact same, you know, passion and, you know, reading it, it really made me realize, you know, wow, like this is exactly me. You know, what the first question I wanted to ask you was like, you know, do you have any stories about loving cars as a kid? Like any amazing experiences you've had with them, you know, in your childhood? Yeah, I mean, uh, I grew up in Detroit. So, um, you know, the, the sort of automotive capital of the country and of the world in many ways. Um, and so that's maybe that had some influence on my affection for cars, although I have uh, an older brother and two younger siblings, a sister and a brother. And my younger brother is into cars, but no one else in my family really is. My parents were not. Um, they, they didn't have interesting cars. They didn't have cool cars. Um, but uh uh, very early on as a kid, I developed this interest, you know, and probably not unlike yourself, by the age of whatever, three, four, I was able to identify all the cars on the street and would call them out and would sit on, you know, sit uh, along the side of the road and watch cars go by just to watch them go by and see cars. Um, and that sort of developed, I was in a program when I was in elementary school that was for like um, academically talented or gifted kids and they allowed us to do independent research projects and um, I decided to do mine on classic cars. Um, so I was really into as a young kid uh, into cars of like the 20s and 30s and uh, sort of the interwar period. Um, that was sort of my first entree into the automotive world. I wasn't into like muscle cars or or sports cars or things like that. I love these big, elegant, you know, crazy, archaic behemoths from, from you know, 50, 60 years before I was born. Um, so, uh, yeah, so I, that's, that's sort of where that, that passion began. And then, uh, you know, I was just encouraged in that by my parents, um, you know, much like as discussed in the, in the article that you, that you bring up from Car Driver about sort of the roots of automotive affection. How do these things take hold and how do they remain uh, and what sort of dissuades people from pursuing their passions? And so parental engagement, not necessarily in the subject matter, but um, in sort of fostering the child's interest in the subject matter and continuing to find new and interesting ways for the child to develop those interests was a big part of sort of what happened with me. So my, my parents were, were pretty good about sort of recognizing those interests of mine and then helping me to just pretty much gain the tools to explore knowledge. Um, and so, yeah, so it kind of went on from there. Um, and, you know, it had, growing up in, in Detroit, you know, we had access to great car museums, like at the Henry Ford Museum, Greenfield Village. Mm -hmm. And, um, and, uh, you know, other places in the Midwest, I got to go to the Auburn Court Duesenberg Museum with my dad when I was a kid. I was really into Auburn's Courts and Duesenbergs. Um, so yeah, those were the, those were the, those are the main things. And then I had a few relatives or friends, parents or whatever who had more of a deep interest in cars, um, and had weirder cars and, uh, and sort of exposed me to that. Cause growing up in Detroit in the time period that I did in the 19th, you know, 1970s. Um, it was very much, you know, uh, domestic cars still really dominated the landscape, uh, especially there. And it was kind of a, you know, you were fr it was frowned upon to have a foreign car. Um, and that didn't really change until, started to change until much later. Yeah. And so, you, you know, as you, you talked about your parents, you know, fueling your passion. And does that, do you think your parents fueling your passion really, you know, makes you, believe you can achieve you know so 
sorry, what I'm trying to say is like, you know, if your parents are helping you and you like, they're supporting you with this, you have, you know, the need, you, you still are interested in your passion later on in life because they I supported mean, you. I think that there's definitely something there. You know what I mean? It's not, it's not a one-to-one thing necessarily, uh, developmentally. Um, you know, my other, my other background, my other area of expertise is really in child development. I was an educator mm. for many years and have a master's degree in, in early childhood development. Um, and all of that. So I think it's not necessarily one to one, but I think for sure the fact that there was that um, that ability for me to to keep going with that definitely uh, allowed that interest to continue and develop. I mean, I was I was fortunate in some ways in that my parents sort of never really told me these are things you can't do. You know, so as a as an undergraduate, you know, I studied writing. Um, in graduate school, I studied education, and those have been sort of the foundations of my careers for the most part, uh, my various careers in my adult life. Um, so I think it, as much as I'm a believer in, in parental support, I'm also like a real strong believer in the power of, of education and educational opportunity. Being a child and growing up with this car passion and, you know, going to the part, you know, I've I've always wanted to ask someone, you know, who listened to the cars and worked with them. Is when it was time to get a car, what was the first car you bought? It's a it's a great question, um, and it's a you know I, I think you can tell a lot about people's lives through their through the stories of their cars. I used to do a lot of uh, celebrity interviews back when I was writing for Vanity Fair. Um, mm-hmm. more frequently and that was the weird sort of tell a celebrity's life through the, the experiences of their cars. But mine is a mine is a good one. Uh, I was. Um, obsessed, you know, as a kid with, um, with, uh, as a little kid with classic cars, I didn't end up getting a, you know, a, a 1934 Duesenberg or something like that for my first car, but, um, I found my way into European cars. Uh, and, uh, my first car was a 1973 BMW 2002. Um, oh, wow. I'm not sure. I'm not sure if you know it, but it's sort of like the progenitor of the three series. So it was like the original sort of sports sedan. Um, and, uh, yeah. So, um, so yeah, that was my first car. I looked all over, uh, for one, um, and I ended up with not a great example, but one that has, that was pretty mechanically sound. The body needed some work. And, um, I worked a part-time job quite heavily during high school and sort of saved up all my money to, to uh, fix up the car, um, and then sadly, right afterwards, I had gotten it repaired and restored and repainted, and all new body, you know, a bunch of new body panels and stuff like that. Um, and shortly after that, in the summer after my senior year in high school, uh, someone rear-ended me at a stoplight and totaled it. And when you say that, that actually leads me to my next question: Is like, do you have any special memories with that car? Yeah, I mean, it was a, it was a, it was a fantastic car. It was just so it really taught me how to enjoy a vehicle. You know, um, I don't claim to be a very good driver, uh, but that car certainly helped fuel my understanding of sort of the, the physics and mechanics of driving. It was just a really, really nicely balanced vehicle, um, and I went to. Uh, uh, I was a scholarship student at a private prep school in Michigan, uh, and it had a big campus and uh, had all these sort of twisty, curvy back roads that ran through the campus. Um, and so I have a lot of fond memories of driving around in that car during that time period um, and just sort of whizzing, whizzing back there with my my friends buckled into the passenger seat, sort of <laughs> screaming for their lives. Um, and uh, yeah, no, it was a it was a wonderful car. Weirdly, you know, this was in a time when 
not everyone had a camera in their pocket at all times. And I have, I, I have, I can't, I don't think I have any pictures of that car. Um, there might be some one somewhere, you know, but I have not been able to come across one. Uh, mm-hmm. yeah. So, but yeah, I mean, all my memories of that car for the most part, even when it would break down on me, which it did quite frequently, um, you know, there was a certain joy and affection I had for it. Um, even if it was frustrating and I'm sure it was more frustrating to other people that had to rescue me. Coming out of college, did you, you know, having this passion, were you like, being like, I'm going to do something involved with cars right when I get out of college and I'll go find a job? Or was it like, maybe I should think about this? Yeah, you know, it's a really, it's a really good question. I, I actually never, ever considered a career in, in car, in the, in the automotive world. Um, I was, you know, I wanted to be, I studied fiction writing. I wanted to be a fiction writer. Um, and uh, after I finished school, I had been working in the classroom as a, as a preschool teacher as well through college. It was a work-study job that I had. And then when I took some time away from school, I worked at a school as well out in Seattle. So um, I, I was interested in education. So I got a job as a teacher, and then I was writing short stories on the side. Uh, I ended up going back to school for a master's degree in education in order to continue my career in the classroom um, and started publishing short stories. And I, after it was only after I got out of the classroom, I had a whole other career as a researcher and consultant for companies that made media and toys and consumer products and educational materials for kids and families. Um, and eventually, I decided to write a parenting book based on my experiences in the classroom. And it was only after I published that book in 2008 um, that I started sort of writing as a freelancer, uh, not uh, nonfiction. Um, so for like magazines and newspapers and websites, and I started writing originally about parenting and child development. And then, so this is, you know, this is all by the time I'm 40 now, right? So I'm 40, I was 40, before, almost 40 before I started writing about cars. Um, one of the publications I was writing for, for Vanity Fair, um, asked, you know, are there other subjects I had been doing some writing about kids and parenting for them? They asked if there were other subjects I was interested in. And I listed off this whole long list of erudite subjects and cars were sort of at the bottom. I was like, I've always sort of had this like closeted interest in cars. Um, because when I was in college, um, I went to a very liberal, liberal arts college called Overland in Ohio. And um, it was sort of like cars were seen as something that was sort of, you know, profligate, wasteful. Uh, it didn't really fit in with the, with the, with the culture particularly. So I used to hide in the, in the public library and read, read the car magazines there away from my peers. Um, I kept up with the industry. Um, but, uh, yeah, so, um, you know, it was only later in life that I that I um, started writing about cars. So I started doing a weekly online column for Vanity Fair, and then it sort of, you know, I started looking deeper into the into the category and reading more and sort of meeting people at events and started writing sort of more as a freelancer for a bunch of different publications. Um, so it was just sort of this incidental thing that happened, sort of combining my passion for writing and my passion for cars. Uh, but it was, yeah, it was definitely, you know, it was nearly 20 years after I graduated from college before that started. Yeah. So, so, you know, I'm going to, yeah. So I'm going to go from, you know, now you started writing for these car magazines about, you know, cars. And mm-hmm. I just wanted to, you know, I wanted to go into like what your job really is for the people who don't know what you do. Like, how does this work? Are you reviewing cars and writing about them? Are you getting information from people who've already reviewed them? How does that work? Sure. I mean, I do a lot of different things in this world. Um, I definitely do some straightforward car reviews where it's like I'll go somewhere, drive a car, or I'll have a car delivered to me at my my place and drive it and then write sort of something about it. And it could be 
you know, a, a variety of different things. I don't do like instrumented testing. I'm not like, you know, just strapping on equipment and doing zero mm-hmm. to 60 times and road, road holding numbers and things like that. I just, I don't do that kind of stuff. Um, but I'll write a narrative about, you know, about uh, a car or I'll take a trip and write a story about the trip that includes the car or things like that. So that's one thing that I do sort of straightforward. Um, here's a new car that, and here's why, here's what I thought of it. Here's what's interesting about it. Here's my little, here's my personal take on it, essentially subjective take on it. Um, and, you know, in comparison sometimes or contrast to other things that exist in the category that I know about other cars. Um, other things that I'll do, I'll do reportage on, you know, on new on up-and-coming trends in the industry. Um, I did a story for the New York Times recently, for example, that was about, um, you know, recycled and sustainable materials on the interiors of cars and sort of what that means oh, about okay. what it means about the, about the, the industry. Um, I'll do, I did a trend piece for uh, popular mechanics. Uh, I'm just thinking of some recent ones about electric um, trucks. Uh, battery-powered mm-hmm. trucks that will be coming out. So things like that, like a collection of vehicles that sort of fit into um, a trend or something that seems to a direction that the industry seems to be taking. Um, I do a lot of like design stories, so talking to designers about um, uh, new and upcoming vehicles or categories oh, wow. of vehicles. Um, I will do um, you know uh, I, a lot of stories that are sort of connecting cars to popular culture, so the way the car exists in art or architecture, books, movies, music, dance, fashion, um, and then a lot of times those kinds of stories will end up having, you know, a, a celebrity connection of some sort, someone who's involved mm. in one of those things, um, you know, someone who, an actor who is in a movie that, you know, that featured a car prominently or they have to drive in it, uh, like, uh, I'm trying to think of a good example, like uh, there was that uh, movie Baby Driver with Ansel Elgort. Did you ever see that movie? He's like I a getaway driver. Okay, so yeah. I interviewed Ansel for that, you know, for a, a story about that, about like his experience, you know, on set driving cars and things like that. But there's, you know, I've done dozens of those with all sorts of different people. Um, so that's another thing that I do. Um, I'm trying to think what else. And then sometimes I'll just write like, you know, an opinion piece or a, an, an op-ed story. I had a story in Wired last month that was sort of calling for a, Green car, New Deal, um, sort of a way of reshaping the uh, the domestic auto industry in the light of um, our current, you know, economic and uh, health crises, um, and looking at those things. Um, and then, you know, sometimes I'll just do, you know, goofy, you know, humorous stories or whatever. Uh, like I had a story in Road and Track recently that was about. Uh, a friend of mine who sort of drunk ordered a Tesla Model Y, and then it suddenly came in a lot sooner than he thought it was going to, um, and he had to decide if he should get it or not, you know, and he needed to sort of make the decision right away. So be talking to some experts about, you know, how he could do that. But a lot, a lot of what I end up doing tends to be researched and reported, so finding the right people to talk to, finding experts who can answer the questions, finding people who can analyze the market or the industry, uh, consumer behavior, all that kind of stuff. So that's, I guess that's kind of a long-winded answer to your question. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so, yeah, as you're telling me all these, you write for all these, you know, big magazines. And when starting, you know, you said you started writing columns for Condever. Was Did you have to build up a reputation to start, you know, interviewing these celebrities? Or was it like you already put in, you know, doing all these big stories? Um, I mean, 
I was fortunate in that when I first started writing about cars, I was writing for a publication that hadn't really had that kind of content before, and people were relatively open to it. It had a good profile for Vanity Fair. And so that opened a lot of doors for me in terms of um, people who I could speak with, you know, getting getting connected to executives or getting connected to celebrities or things like that. And I had help from the magazine and the site mm-hmm. in doing some of that as well. So that definitely, I think, helped me to build up my reputation in the in the in the context of the journalism, car journalism industry. And then a lot of it was also just really, you know, being relatively social as a person and sort of just when I would go to events, just, you know, trying to meet people and figure out, you know, what was going on and having some friends who were sort of in that world already. Um, a good friend of mine was uh, ended up becoming the editor in chief at Car and Driver in the in the uh, like 2000 early, you know, 2010s or something like that. Um, and so, you know, I sort of just uh, wrote to him and said like, hey, I've been doing this for a little while. I'd love to write for you. And he was, you know, I, he accepted a pitch of mine and we just sort of took it from there. Like what cars do you own today that are in your garage? And is there some like reason why you own them? Sure. Um, I have five cars, um, which is ridiculous um, <laughs> because I live in New York City. Uh, I have a place outside of the city as well. Two of three of them I own with my um, with my younger brother, who's also passionate about cars. Uh, so we have a 1972 Saab uh, 95 wagon, which is a two door seven passenger uh, small Swedish station wagon. Um, we have, and he's a big Saab fanatic. So that one, mm-hmm. that one, he, that one he uh-huh. sort of found. He has a number of other Saabs as well. Um, and it's, you know, it's just a very strange, quirky car. I really like it. Um, uh, we have also a 1978 Porsche 928, um, oh, wow. which is the first year for that for that model. Um, and uh, that's I don't know. That might be my favorite. Although I have another one that I also really like. Um, that's a, it's just such a cool. It was like yeah. such an iconic car in my childhood. Such a weird looking car. So kind of radically shaped. It still looks futuristic, I think, and it's you know it's a forty year old, forty plus year old design now, um, and it's just a it's a it's a blast to drive. It's kind of like a like a very planted German muscle car, um, so that one's great. We have a nineteen seventy nine Fiat one twenty four Spider, so a little Italian convertible. Um, I just think it's a that design is uh, very elegant. I mean, they made it for pretty much you know through twenty twenty something years. Um, I actually had the opportunity to interview the guy who designed it, Tom Charda, um, uh, for a Wired story some years ago when I was out in Pebble Beach at the, at the Concorso Italiano. Mm-hmm. So I got to talk to him a little bit about the design of that car. But yeah, it's just such it's such a fun, nimble car. Um, so much weirdly, so much space on the inside. You know, it has a, it has like a little back seat. No safety, you know, no safety uh, uh, mechanisms or anything like that, but a real, a real hoot to drive. Um, and so we found, we, we found a good version of that. That was actually kind of a impulse purchase. You know, we were like, we should get one of these. And my brother sort of found one, uh, like coming back from a flight in China or something. He was like, what about this one? And I was like, sounds great. And then, like, you know, an hour later, he was like, okay, we own it. Um, so that one. Uh, then I have a 1990 Range Rover. Um, wow, yeah. I've always had, yeah, my place upstate, I've always had sort of like a big classic um, SUV up here. And so I had a, a 1984 Grand Jeep Grand Wagoneer, then I had a 1987 Jeep Grand Wagoneer, then I had a 1972 Chevy Suburban. Um, and then I got this uh, Range Rover maybe 
four or five years ago. And um, I just love the, I love the design of that car. It's so, it's so elegant, but it's also kind of rugged. Um, the greenhouse on it, the windows and the windshield and stuff are so mm-hmm. tall. You know, you feel like you're sort of like, like, like the, the side windows sort of come up, come up to your hip almost. Like it's just all glass. So it has amazing, amazing visibility. It has a really nice cushy ride. Um, and it'll go through anything. Um, it's, you know, not the most reliable. None of these cars are the most reliable vehicle <laughs> yeah. in the world, but that's part of the story of them for me, I think. Um, I like trouble, I guess. And then the last one is, um, a 2018 Volkswagen Alltrack station wagon. Uh, that's like a regular daily driver. Uh, my boyfriend's car for the most part. Um, we needed something that, uh, was, um, reliable, you know, that, that, mm-hmm. that worked with before that, the, the most modern car I had uh, up until we got the Alltrack, which was just like three years wow. ago, was a 2004, uh, BMW 3 Series. Um, so that, at that time, that car was already like a 13 year old car. Um, and so, yeah, we needed something good. And so we wanted a, we wanted a wagon. We wanted, uh, something with all wheel drive and we wanted something with a manual transmission and pretty much the all track was the only vehicle that sort of fit mm-hmm. in that besides maybe like a Subaru Impreza, but it's not really a wagon. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, that's my fleet. <laughs> and I'm always looking, I'm always like cruising yeah. around on bring a trailer and eBay and stuff like that, looking at other cars. But, um, and my brother is always sending me links. To, he just sent me a link yesterday. So like that's stop. 99 turbo, <laughs> like the first year sub. It was the last year sub 99 turbo that we used. He was like, we need to get this. Um, but neither of us has any additional storage space. Um, yeah. And uh, we're already maxed out. So it probably won't happen unless we sell one, one or more of these vehicles. <laughs> Do you have a dream car still today that, you know, may, not, may be attainable or not attainable? That- yeah. I mean, I have. There are definitely a few cars that I definitely want to own. Um, mm-hmm. in my lifetime, I think about like, you know, I look at bring a trailer pretty frequently, not, you know, yeah. not, not all day long, but like usually yeah. once a day or a few times a week. Um, and there's certain cars I'm always sort of like, Hmm, uh, one of them is probably like a, a, a Mercedes R107. So the, like the 450, 560 FL from the, mm-hmm. from the seventies and eighties. Um, I would love to own one of those cars. I think I probably will someday. I also love the big coupe, the, the, the C126, the big like uh, mm-hmm. S-class coupe from that era, as well. So like a 500 or 560 SEC. Um, Jaguar XJS, the V12. Oh coupe. yeah. Um, I really like those. I like Jaguar sedans from that era as well. XJ6 or an XJ12 would be amazing. Um, mm-hmm. And then, uh, so those are some of the ones that I'm sort of always bouncing around on. I, I still do look at BMW 2002s. They've gotten really pricey in recent years, but mm-hmm. it, it's not out of the, out of the question for me to own another, own one of those again. Um, I would imagine, uh, there's a few, like, I like, I would love to get like an Alpha Julia sedan, you know, um, from the, from the seventies. Those are great or from the sixties. Um, and then, you know, uh, for like, crazy like out, out there cars um like i have a strange affection for like the ferrari mondial which everyone sort of uh, hates but uh um, i think there's something fantastic about like a four seat mid-engine especially convertible <laughs> version um it's just such a bananas um concept for cars and kind of strange looking. um and then oh, totally out there unattainable uh, a Facel Vega HK500. I recently drove one. I'm writing a story of, uh, about them for a magazine. Um, and I really recently had the opportunity to drive one. And this is, I don't know if you know this car, this is a car that was made in France or hand built, um, in the parlance mm-hmm. of the day. It was called a hybrid. 
so that meant it had a European body and, and, and design, uh, but with an American motor. So the fossils had a uh, Chrysler, um, Hemi or Powerdome engines in them making, you know, in, enormous power. This is in the 1950s and, you know, up to 380, 385 horsepower, something like that. So crazy amounts of power, um, for that time period. Uh, but just a very, very elegant, uh, elegant design, sort of a stately grand tour, but with a lot of muscle, you know, a lot of snort, yeah. so to speak. Um, and so yeah, I've always been drawn to those cars. They're very rare. They're, um, you know, they were sort of the, a, very, a real high society kind of car, um, celebrities and, and, uh, heads of state and people like that had them back in the day. Um, yeah. and so, yeah, I had the opportunity to drive one recently and it was, um, it was pretty dreamy. Wow. Yeah. And so I just wanted to uh, wrap up here with a question back to reviewing. Has there ever been like, uh, like, uh, a favorite car you've ever reviewed or like not reviewed, but you know, written about like being able to drive and then write about it. Yeah. Um, I mean, I've had great, experiences a great great good good luck i i tend to cover mostly uh high-end sort of sport and luxury vehicles um mm-hmm. and so i get to drive all of that kind of stuff so that's that's yeah. fantastic to be able to drive mm-hmm. you know lamborghinis and acid Martins and ferraris and, yeah. and like, all that kind of stuff that's all great um the most i mean the most interesting things i think um that i that i've driven have been like either like strange prototypes like i got to drive a mercedes d111 which was like a a prototype vehicle that they built, a very early sort of wedge-shaped vehicle that, that Mercedes developed in the in the late 60s um, and then used it as a test bed. It was a mid-engine two-seater, used it as, mm-hmm. a, as a test bed for all sorts of safety equipment and for all sorts of new engines. Wow. Um, so Wankel, you know, rotary engines and, and turbocharged mm-hmm. diesel engines and things like that. So I got to drive one of those one time, which was super cool. Um, I got to drive... Uh, uh, a, a vintage Mercedes, like a, a 540 SSK, I think, from the you know from the late 30s, uh, which was you know uh, owned by owned by Mercedes Benz from their museum, and that was like a you know like a wow. 15 million 15 million dollar car. <laughs> um, and then probably my probably the top one though, given my given my childhood fascination with classic cars, um, I got to drive a uh, Gary Cooper's Duesenberg SSJ, which. It was one of only wow. two um, SSJ. So it was a it was a shortened wheelbase, uh, sort of high output version of the of the of the supercharged Duesenberg straight eight motor. And you know this was back in 1935. The car made somewhere around 420 horsepower um, and did you know did zero to sixty in under eight seconds. Well, thank you so much for um, letting me interview today. Being able to interview someone with your experience has been it's really awesome. So thank you for that. It's, it's my pleasure, Nico. And if you have further questions, do not hesitate to get in touch with me anytime. I'd love to hear from you. Perfect. Thank you so much. Thank you guys so much for tuning in to today's episode of 100% Cars. Before we end, I just want to say thank you to Quillen Domang and Brett Burke for coming on the podcast. It was so much fun. Please go follow me on Instagram at NicoLombard45. For all the people listening, thank you so much for your support. It really does mean a lot. All right, guys. I'll see you in the next episode. Later.